This episode of the Coin World Podcast is brought to you by Amos Advantage, your ultimate destination for coin collecting accessories. Receive free shipping on orders over $65. This is a limited time offer, so shop AmosAdvantage.com today. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. I'm Chris Wolfinch. And I'm Jeff Stark. We have a commemorative-themed episode for you today. We talked with Gary Herman, an expert on the coinage of Lorgarn Fraser, who designed a number of significant U.S. commemorative coins. And most of our segments this week pertain in some way to commemorative coins. So you'll be learning what they are, a few major examples and iterations of them. We'll also be taking a look back at This Week in History. So this is where I remind you that you should be following and subscribing to the Coin World podcast. Share it with everyone you know. We appreciate it. It helps us have a chance to come back here every week. We're going, this is 27 weeks now. We want to keep doing this and share some information with you and honestly have fun doing it. We're going to open up this episode with a trivia question that's going to function as a quiz of how closely you've been listening to the podcast. Yes, this is a pop quiz. It will count for points. I, I just so happened to grab the first card I grabbed out of the Coin World trivia game this week at novice level. We've talked about it not too long ago. See how close you've been listening if you've missed any episodes. The question this week, and it's pop quiz, speaks to something we've talked about recently, is what is the supposed jackass on the jackass note? Now, this is not a political figure. This is not a, and, and, and a caricature. To, and to give you one little piece of help, uh, listeners, it is the 1869 $10 note. Okay. Is, is the jackass note. So why, why is it called that? So think about that while we talk about all this other fun stuff. Now that we've shared that question for you, we're going to have some information and elucidation You've talked about commemorative coins. Mm. What what is what is a commemorative our, coin? Our, our commemorative our sort of commemorative centric episode. We should start with defining a couple of simple terms. What is a commemorative coin? Now, the sort of tautological surly eighth grader answer to that question is a coin that commemorates something. I could see me in eighth grade going, "Oh, it's a coin that commemorates something." So, and as an answer to that question, <laughs> we ask you about a jackass note. You're a smartass. <laughs> exactly. So, it is a coin that commemorates something. Now, it can be any number of denominations, and in fact, throughout history, there have been commemorative coins. Actually, there have been commemorative coins dating back to ancient times. I mean, there are ancient Greek coins. And sure. medals and that tokens commemorate and things. the Olympics, that commemorate that, different military victories. That, yeah. That, yeah, that were struck to honor all kinds of things. So commemorative coins are millennia old. And what they are struck to honor depends very much on the country. And a lot of people have argued, rightly I think, that commemorative coins function as a sort of a very visceral articulation of a society's values. Certainly so, a window into what a nation yeah. uh, deems important. Deems important, what it has on its mind, the things that's trying to work through. And the United States is certainly no exception. We have had commemorative coins since the 1890s, in, since 1892 specifically, with the World's Columbian Exhibition Half Dollar, which we talked about in a previous episode. And between 1892 and present day, we've minted... Tons of different commemoratives for a lot of different things. And in fact, 
if you read our print coverage at all, in this past year, we've actually talked about the sheer number of commemorative coins that were produced, especially in the 1930s. 1936, the watermark or high, high yeah. watermark of the... <laughs> the high watermark of commemorating pretty much everything. Yeah. So when Cincinnati Music Center that didn't really exist and didn't have... Yeah, that's, I mean, there's, there's so many stories of abuse yeah. and... Cleveland, Elgin, fraud. Illinois. Yeah. Um, so now commemorative coins in an, an American context typically are, you know, as anyone knows who understands the legislative side of numismatics, knows that the mint is actually the sort of organ of the Treasury Department that creates coins. The mint does not itself decide what to commemorate. The Treasury Department does, and the Treasury Department is instructed by Congress. So beginning in 1892, but picking up particularly in the late 19-teens and all the way through the 1930s, all of the coins that were mandated to be struck, the profits generated from the sale of those coins usually went to benefit some kind of organization or institution. Jeff mentioned the Cincinnati Music Center. All of the proceeds... Which didn't really exist. And, you know, a lot of these coins were, they were pet projects for individuals to sell to make money. Whereas in modern times, since the revival in 1982, the funds, the surcharges have been uh, slotted for authorized entities right. with a, a little more cachet to them. They're not just, you know, fly-by-nights or private individuals. They're right. so, serious organizations. Now, other countries structure their commemorative coins and decide what events or people or institutions to commemorate on coins differently. Not all countries have sort of our sort of funding scheme and, and determining where the proceeds go. Um, some countries just do it to do it. So the different countries do it differently, but in America, most commemorative coins are proposed by an organization, typically a philanthropic organization, but as Jeff mentioned, individuals and lots of other people and lots of other people and institutions have suggested commemorative coin legislation, and then Congress votes on it, and if it passes through the regular legislative process like any other bill, then the mint is mandated to produce them. So commemorative coins can be split very roughly speaking. I'm sure there are finer gradations, but for the purpose of our discussion, we're going to distinguish between quote-unquote traditional commemorative coins and circulating commemorative coins. Now, most commemorative coins that are struck, especially nowadays, would never see circulation in all likelihood, because if you go to the U.S. Mint and you buy a you know, 2009 Abraham Lincoln commemorative silver dollar, you're not going to go to a convenience store and buy a pack of gum with that dollar because not only the metal content, but its numismatic value means that it's worth more in whatever packaging you get it in. And the metal, the silver, the... Exactly. Yeah. So the, the bullion value and the numismatic value both outstrip its its usefulness as a sort as of... As a spending currency. Yeah, as a mechanism of, of transaction. So most commemorative coins don't circulate. Now, circulating commemoratives are struck, as their name suggests, for the purpose of circulation, and they usually don't have any precious metal, uh, unless it's sort of like a special striking, and you know they're intended to just be sort of public commemorations of something, but they're not meant to be sort of venerated as collector's objects. They're just meant to circulate and serve the purpose of regular coins. One of the largest and you know most significant recent circulating commemorative coin programs was the U.S. 50-state commemorative quarter program where beginning in 1999 and ending in 2009, the U.S. Mint, on orders from the Treasury Department, on orders from Congress, struck unique quarters for each one of the 50 states and six territories, and then released them out into circulation. And you can assemble a full set of these commemorative coins out of circulation today. And Canada is actually very famous for striking a lot of circulating commemoratives, as Jeff is going to talk about 
in our This Week in History. That's right. So Canada was the inspiration for the U.S. commemorative quarter program. But Canada has a different circulating commemorative series that is in the news this week in history. What is that? This week in history, September 30th, 1968. 68, not 67. 1968, this day was when the Royal Canadian Mint finally completed filling orders for the 1967 Confederation Centennial coin sets. What are these? These are a one-year type special designs on the one cent, five cent, ten cent, twenty-five cent, fifty cent, and dollar coins from Canada for the Centennial of Confederation in 1967. You have the loon on the dollar. You have the bobcat on the quarter. Some very great designs, very simplistic very sparse but very powerful. They're animal designs. It's it's one of the neat sets, affordable sets that you can get. Why is it affordable? Because everybody in Canada was awash in uh, fervor for the centennial, and so they made tons of these, and it took the Royal Canadian Mint nine full months into the following year to fill the orders. That's why it's this week in history. And you can get the set for $25 or so less and uncirculated. You can find it in the original packaging. In the original packaging. It's it's kind of one of those must-haves for a, you know, for just your average collector. If you're going to collect Canada, that's an easy one to find. You find really high, you can find, you know, reasonably high-grade uncirculated pieces in melt boxes. I mean, I've pulled... You yeah. know, the quarter with the, the bobcat on it. Yeah. I pulled a bunch of those. And the little the little tiny, the 10 cent, the fish scales. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, with the fish on them appropriately. Yeah. I've, you know, I've pulled nice looking, you know, higher grade examples of those out of junk boxes and things. So you can actually, yeah. if you wanted to, you can assemble a set out of junk boxes and, uh, you know, melt bins basically. Or. For the most part. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. The, the dollar might be. The dollar, be the tougher, half dollar but might be harder. I mean, but you could the, find them. The, the dollar itself has like eleven twenty five in silver, yeah. uh, six hundred fine, but it, it faces up nice, great design. There are also some rotated, very beautiful. rotated die errors where the loon is diving uh, co- according uh, in relation to <laughs> the queen that. on the other side. So I, 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 I want to find one of those now. There, there, there's <laughs> diving there, loon. That's funny. It, it's it's really fun, affordable series. That was probably the first circulating commemorative coin program from the Royal Canadian Mint. They invited the nation to design them. That was an inspiration for later programs. And that is why we are looking back this week in history to September 30th, 1968. So now we've talked about coins commemorating the 100th anniversary of Canada's Confederation. Now for our series of the week, we're going to pivot back to America specifically to the state of Alabama, where, as a means of funding the state's belated centennial celebration, a law was promulgated and then passed in Congress in Washington, D.C. that would enable a commemorative coin. Now, the artist who was whose designs were selected for the coin was none other than Laura Garden Frazier, the woman who is the theme of our interview, which is going to be coming up in a little bit. What made that Alabama centennial coin so special? Well, it's actually one of the most... Not unlike the 1892-93 Columbian half dollar and Isabella quarter, this was kind of a, a, a groundbreaking coin in a number of ways. Okay. First and foremost, and, and people who are familiar with Alabama history would, would take note of this, 
It actually wasn't a proper centennial coin. Alabama was admitted into the Union in December of 1819, which would make its centennial December of 1919, the 100-year anniversary of its admission into the Union, which is what they were celebrating. But the law that actually enabled the production of the Alabama centennial half dollar didn't even enter Congress until 1920. And then the coin itself didn't enter production until 1921. Whoops, so, we missed this anniversary, yeah. <laughs> but can we celebrate it anyway? <laughs> exactly. So That's like me showing up to a party as everyone's tearing everything down. <laughs> right. They're, so they're, they were a little late to the party, so to speak, with getting the Alabama Centennial Half Dollar in, into the works and then, and then selling it. But nonetheless, they wanted to have it, and Congress agreed that even though it wasn't actually commemorating the 100th anniversary, it was technically commemorating the 102nd anniversary. And even though it was technically commemorating the 102nd anniversary, it went ahead with production anyway. Now, that means – that brings us to one unique aspect of – not only did they miss the deadline, but another unique aspect of the coin is the fact that it features three dates. A lot of commemorative coins feature two dates, the date of whatever the thing it is they're commemorating and then the date that the coin was struck. If you look at the U.S. Um, 50-state commemorative uh, quarter program – you know, it has the date that whatever state they're honoring entered the Union and then the date that the coin was minted. Or like that famous quarter from 1776 <laughs> that, that, that everyone finds in circulation. Why does it say 1976 on it? Yeah, the, the, your, your example is, is apt. The, the American bicentennial coinage from 1976 also featured the date 1776 because they're honoring the bicentennial 200 and years. And those were circulating commemoratives and as some, well. But anyway. Some of the – let's call them the numismatically uninitiated – find them and think, oh, what luck. I have a quarter from 1776, which obviously quarters weren't even being made in 1776. But that, they, That's <laughs> like saying this ancient coin has the date 249 BC on it. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> exactly. So anyway, so a lot of commemorative coins do feature two dates. But since the Alabama Centennial Half Dollar was late to the party, it has three dates. It has 1819, 1919, and 1921. So they acknowledge right there on the coin that they kind of goofed it up. So now Laura Garden Fraser, who was a noted medallic artist who had actually a number of very successful medals and sculptures before her designs were selected by the Mint for use on the Alabama Centennial Half Dollar. Well, don't give it all away. <laughs> she designed what is actually a pretty handsome coin that has some pretty serious history behind it. Now, the obverse of the Alabama Centennial Half Dollar features two people's busts. It features the bust of William Wyatt Bibb and T.E. Kilby. Now, William Wyatt Bibb was Alabama's first governor who assumed office in 1819 and served for actually less than a year before he got bucked off a horse and died in 1820. And so he has the distinction of being the first American governor of a state to appear on a coin. He was, he was the very first. They'd, it had never happened before. None of the commemorative coins previously featured the portrait of a governor. Now, T.E. Kilby has his own unique distinction. He was the serving governor of Alabama who served between 1919 and 1923, so he presided over the state's centennial, and he is the first living person to be featured on a coin. While it's not codified in law, there's been a long-standing tradition that dates all the way back to George Washington that living people don't appear on U.S. coins typically. Washington famously rejected the idea of having his portrait on the first American coinage because he felt that it was too similar to the coinage of England where they put the monarch, king or queen or whoever, on the obverse, and he felt that that was inappropriate considering the democratic values of the new country. So the long-standing tradition was that you don't portray living people, but in 1921, that norm was shattered when T.E. Kilby, the serving governor of Alabama, appeared on the Alabama Centennial Half Dollar. On the reverse, 
you have an adapted version of the Seal of Alabama with what the Red Book describes as a dynamic eagle, which is adapted from – you couldn't see my air quotes, but there were quotes around that. It was adapted from the Alabama State Seal that appears on the reverse along with uh, 1819 and 1919, the two dates honoring Alabama's centennial. Now – the last sort of the last truly unique aspect of this coin is the fact that it was designed by Laura Garden Fraser. This was the first coin ever produced by the United States that was designed by a woman. Among her many accomplishments, Laura Garden Fraser is probably best known for being the first woman to design a US coin, and the Alabama Centennial Half Dollar was her very first design that made its way onto a coin. It was not a circulating coin, though you do find you circulated can, examples. You can right? find circulated examples of the 1921 Alabama Centennial, or I guess kind of Centennial, half dollar. So now that we've heard all about Laura Garden Fraser's commemorative coin, we need to learn about Gary Herman, who did some work into Laura Garden Fraser. But before we can do that, I think we have to go back to that pop quiz. I think we have to find out how our listeners scored, because, you know, if 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 we need to grade this on a curve, that's gonna be pretty sad for us. Uh, graded on a curved coin, but on a bomb. <laughs> like, anyway. like the 2014 baseball commemorative? Yes, yes. <laughs> exactly. So, or the 2021, is it? The basketball Yeah, the basketball ones up? that they're doing? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, the question was from the Coin World Trivia. Yeah. What is the supposed jackass on the jackass note? I know Chris knows this because he talked about it just <laughs> I, last week. I did the series of the week last week on this exact thing. So you should all know if you've been listening. And if you haven't, for shame. For shame. You can go to coinworld.com and find all the past episodes. But seriously, if you, if you have time, go check out a few of them. Some yes. Of, we, we've had fun doing them. So what is the, the answer to that all-important question? So the jackass refers to an eagle that appears on the face of the note, remember, Face correlates with the term obverse for coins. On the face of the 1869 $10 note, there's a small eagle, a small engraving of an eagle that appears on the face of the note right in the middle of the note horizontally, right at the Towards bottom, the bottom yeah. of the note vertically. And it looks like a pretty, you know, regular eagle. It's got the, you know, the banner in its talons. It's got the union shield and everything. It looks like a pretty regular eagle that you might expect to see on U.S. currency. But if you turn, if you flip the note 180 degrees, if you turn it upside down and you look at it, a lot of people claim that it resembles the head of a donkey now personally i don't see it i i've stared at that thing for for my my segment last week and for this i have stared at that thing i don't see a donkey but maybe you do that is the origin of the term jackass note now series 1869 $10 notes also go by the moniker rainbow notes because there are a whole bunch of different colored inks used for different devices on the notes but for the our purposes of this trivia question is the 1869 $10 note are called jackass notes. Flip them around and you'll see a donkey, supposedly. I think it's there if you really look, but... I'd, I'd, it, I'd, I'll, I'll it, keep staring at it. I haven't, I haven't gotten myself it there is, uh, The donkey is in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> now... That's my Tinder profile right there. <laughs> it's, my, now, it's my Tinder bio. Now we're, uh, we're going to throw this to our fascinating interview with Gary Herman, who has studied the life and art of Laura Garden Fraser. There's a lot to learn about her work and what she did in her place in U.S. numismatic history. We certainly hope you enjoy it. Please give it a listen.
We are joined today by Gary Herman, an expert on the life and coinage of Laura Garden Frazier, the first woman to ever design a U.S. coin. Thanks so much for joining us, Gary. You're welcome. Glad to be here. So, Laura Garden Frazier is known as the first woman to design a U.S. coin. How did she accomplish this, uh, breaking that particular barrier? That's, that's a good question. Certainly, it would have had to been her medallic work up to that point. Uh, this was uh, the Alabama Centennial, which was, what, 1921 or so? So up to that point, she would have had a, a good fair volume of work uh, available to her to be able to uh, submit designs. Also, I think that she already, you know, Thomas E. Kilby on the Alabama Centennial? Yep, she yeah. She had already done a relief of him. Uh, apparently, they were kind of close friends. Oh, really? So she, she had known Kilby before she included his portrait on the obverse of the Alabama Centennial half right, dollar. and she already had done a relief of his bus. Well, so that must have made the design a little bit easier for her to, uh, to be able to include that. I think so, because when I look at the coin and I examine the coin, I notice the great amount of detail in, in the cheekbone and, and the facial features uh, really stand out on him. You alluded to uh, her medallic work, a lot of the sculptural and medallic projects that she'd undertaken before she was uh, taken on to design U.S. commemorative coinage. Which of her medallic contributions were the most significant, and which of them is she best remembered for? One of the more significant ones is one of her earliest ones, a 131-millimeter uh, medallion of John Cardinal Farley celebrating his ascendancy to the Cardinalate of New York. This had won her uh, membership in the prestigious uh, National Sculpture Society. Uh, it would have been in her early days at uh, the Art Students League in New York, where she trained and later became a, uh, a, an instructor there for a short period of time. That's where she met James Earl Frazier. Uh, but what's interesting about that medallion, and I haven't done a lot of research on it yet, I'm still thinking about how to write that up, but it was done, it, it was a cast medallion. And uh, critics noticed, you know, how much lifelike it was and how pleasing it was to the Cardinal. So I think that's certainly a key. Uh, her National Institute of Social Sciences medal uh, also won her a lot of acclaim. Of course, and, and this is all before the 1921 uh, Alabama Centennial, you have uh, the Better Babies Battalion uh, Medal of 1913. You have the uh, Bidewey Medal. Uh, I got one that's dated 1919. And then, of course, coming right up to that is the 1920 Chaplain of the Army and Navy Award. The 1913 Better Babies Award that, that you allude to, the, the organization that sponsored it and the imagery associated with the medal is commonly associated with the eugenics movement, the, the Better Babies um, medal and the sort of Better Babies imagery being a predecessor to Better Families, which was... Uh, oh, it was, a, it was a Fitter Families. Fitter Families, thank you. The Fitter Families concept, which was actually sort of a, a emblematic of the eugenics movement. Laura Garden Fraser herself, there's not really any evidence to suggest that she was a eugenicist, is there? But there might be circumstantial evidence. She was um, a, a good friend of Mrs. Harriman uh, of the railroad Harrimans, and and she used a lot of their money to establish what was called the Eugenics uh, Records Office. 
certainly, you know, you can be friends with somebody that's in something that you don't, that you yourself are not a part of, but I, you, you can make any kind of conjecture. Also, there were, uh, obviously, eugenicists who were on the board of the Better Babies or, or helped establish the Better Babies uh, medal and when it went from uh, scientific uh, standards of hygiene and human development to the eugenics, that's, that happened around the 1920s, the early 1920s. So, and they have their own medal too. I've noticed in some of the papers I found, I don't know who designed it, but it wasn't one of Laura's works and we hear nothing of her involved with this in history or otherwise after this medal. So I'm not even sure if she really fully grasped that that was what Better Babies was all about. I'm, I haven't found anything that's definitive. I would recall Chris and I's discussion with Heidi Wastwit some weeks back where she mentioned that just because she is called upon to create uh, a commission piece that doesn't necessarily mean she agrees with the uh, person who's who wants that piece and and is promoting that design. So it seems to be a lot of gray area there. Then yes, there is, and also you gotta think too. Laura Darden Frazier was born in 1899. This would have put her in her early 20s at this time. So a young woman first getting started in an established, you know, that I don't think that a lot of those other things were really on her mind when she designed these uh, early pieces. Now, that was uh, 1889 she was born? Oh, yeah, that's right, 1889, yeah. that's correct. Okay, but but still relatively young. I mean, you know, I think of if any coin collectors think of her or know of her, it's because of the wonderful designs for the 1932 Washington Quarter, correct? Correct. We understand that she had a challenging relationship with the U.S. Mint. What were the, the source of conflicts between that and the Mint and how that affected her career and was that related? Let's look at that as a broad theme. I found an article written in, in, a, in a coinage magazine by Don Taxay. I think it was January 1970. And in it, he documented some of the problems with the quarter that she had with, with the Mint. And he, and he said this all started with some kind of design issue that came along with the with the Lindbergh medal, the gold, Lindbergh gold medal, the reverse of that uh, design of that. I think the Mint wanted somebody else to design the reverse on that, and she was insistent uh, on her design. And uh, she won out, of course, uh, with the Mint on that, but uh, sometimes I think that, you know, you can win a battle but lose the war. And from what Don Taxe suggests is that she got a, what they call persona non grata, status mm. uh, from the Met is, okay, this this person is toxic. Though. And that's what I think it is. Of course, other people think it was misogynist and, and all this other kind of thing. I I don't think so. And, and the arguments that uh, Taxi uses are, look, she's already designed several commemoratives, and Secretary Mellon was the secretary then. 
So what's different about this now? Yeah. Well, having um, being from Missouri and having a special interest, uh, St. Louis area specifically, having a special interest in the exploits of Lindbergh and the spirit of St. Louis, I am glad that she won out with that beautiful reverse uh, eagle in flight, I believe, for the Lindbergh medal. In her absence of uh, working with the Mint at some point when she became persona non grata, she was still married to somebody who was working with the Mint throughout their joint careers. Can you talk about what influence she had on her husband's art, James Earl Frazier? Everybody, uh, collectors know him for his beloved buffalo uh, or bison and Indian head nickel design. Uh, what was that influence? Has she been appropriately credited for that? Or has that contribution been overlooked? Most of the, the, the complaints that I've read have, have been the other way around. It was her being influenced by her husband rather than her influencing her husband. Now, I know that James Earl Frazier was on the Fine Arts Commission during a lot of this, and I'm not sure if he was for the Washington Quarter, but he was at least on for the uh, Alabama commemorative, and there was some speculation, you know, well, could this be... Uh, could it could it be an unbiased judge on that commission dealing with his wife's designs? Well, you have to imagine I mean, you have to imagine that'd yeah. be kind of an awkward thing to come home to if you rejected your wife's commission and then uh, you know you come home and I have to imagine the conversation would have been uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, you know I I see some similarities between you. Of course, even though I focus mostly on Laura, I I do look at James because he's he's a very big piece of this relationship, and in a lot of respects, he and her, you know, they can't help but influence each other. I think it, this influence started early on, and I think I mentioned before to Chris that the Better Babies medal was was a composite of several different babies that Laura studied and not one singular model, and I, and I thought about, like, the... Um, the buffalo nickel, and having that image being a composite composite image of three different Native American chiefs. But some of the other things I've also noticed, too, is not so much in the main art, but in things like uh, the font seems similar that they use in, in, their, in their legends. Things like the torches on their different medals. I, I compared the torch on her National Institute of Social Sciences medallion with that of uh, a railroad award medal that was designed by James Earl Fraser. And so these, these look very, very, very much the same. Uh, you can see the similarities. And then I checked with a friend who, who I know that's, that's very knowledgeable in, he's collected things from both Frasers. And, uh, he said the only thing they ever, ever admitted to being a, a joint design was the, the Oregon Trail 50-cent piece commemorative. Other than that, they seem to be their own artists. They had their own commissions. They seem to have their own distinct style. And I, I certainly so, could see that in, in the main uh, features and the main and the uh, central devices of all their pieces, that there's a distinct a kind of signature style that they each had. Apropos of those distinct styles. What did distinguish Laura Garden Frazier's work both from the work of her husband and from 
any previous or contemporary, at least contemporary to her period of history, any historical or contemporary uh, medallic artists, what what was different or new or in some ways distinctive about her work? The distinctiveness comes out in the different uh, commissions that she accepted and did. I think uh, the distinctiveness comes out um, in her like her designs of of animals and how she portrays animals. If you look at uh, her eagle on the uh, Washington Quarter that she designed, that eagle is is very close in design to another eagle on the uh, Girl Scout pen that she done earlier, uh, the Girl Scout eaglet pen. Uh, some of the things I've, I've read some comments and commentaries from art critics uh, on her um, eagle going back to the Alabama uh, commemorative and how uh, Cornelius Vermeil said that that was very uh, Renaissance-like eagle. You know, in that time when we're getting away from the heraldic type eagle to something that's more real and lifelike as part of that uh, renaissance of the early 1900s in American coinage. She seems to work out her own distinctness that is uniquely hers. Other uh, artistic styles that she uses, how she manages to bring out the relief in even the smallest of coins. And I go to the, to the grant uh, gold dollar and how she manages to be on, on something that's 15 millimeters across that she manages to put that house and these full maple trees on there with their big bushes of leaves uh, and make it look lifelike and make it look like the relief is just jumping off the face of that little coin is, is really quite something. So would that be among your most favorite of her designs or, or maybe uh, there's another one or two that stand out to you? about favorite is not something that I think of too much because I like to look at them individually. One of, one of the pieces I got early on in my collection was the Oklahoma semi-centennial piece in which she has created an image of the Oklahoma run and how she managed on the obverse of that uh, metal to capture all the excitement and motion and how big that was when you have like 50,000 people all vying for the same land at the same time uh, and a big horse race coming out starting the Oklahoma run. It's interesting how she designs that. She surrounds it by a puff of uh, dust coming up with all the horses and wagons running, and she's got an image of a rider on his horse at full gallop at the highest relief in the central device, and then it works back all the way up the front of the metal, and comes to the lowest relief and the finest little details, and it makes it kind of like a 3D image that really, really captures you, and it captures all the motion and excitement and and the drama of that of that event. Uh, something else that I found was kind of interesting and that I discovered was both Frasers love the Old West, and any design with an Old West theme, they love. And it was kind of interesting how Laura herself, in an interview with Dean Crackle, the author of End of the Trail, The Odyssey of a Statue by Dean Crackle, in an interview she has with him, she states that both her and um, James had a different view of the Old West that affected their art and their creations of the Old West. She saw it 
and kind of all the glory and the motion and the excitement and, and the fast movement and all the action of the Old West, he saw the spiritual underpinnings, the mood of the Old West, especially when it concerned Native Americans, and so created the end of the trail, which is a very different piece of sculpture when compared to the Oklahoma run. And I, and I see how these, these two people, you know, they're bringing in both aspects of the Old West into it and, and their designs, and I just find it fascinating that how, how it comes out in their art. Just a minute ago, you alluded to your own collection of the coins and medals of Lorgarden Fraser. How yeah. how accessible would a a full collection of her of her medals and her coins? How accessible and how affordable would such a collection be for someone who is interested in assembling a set to sort of pay homage to or or assemble a set based on their interest in her life and work? When when you collect medals, you have to understand a couple things about medals is most of the purpose of medals or her commissions were award medals that they were awarding to somebody for something. And those are always more difficult, more expensive to get than something for like uh, the society of medalists that had, had a series of medals or hall of fame for great American series of medals where she's got two in there. Uh, those are all pretty accessible but very inexpensive to get. It's the problem with the other medals is like you got the, or like like the National Geographic Society uh, awards the Hubbard medallion, which which she designed, and it's it's this big medallion, you know, 70 millimeters gold medallion given to very specific people for specific accomplishments, and then there aren't any for collectors, and. These appear on the market. You know what happens when, when a, like a Nobel Prize shows up on for auction, it, it goes for millions. And these these just are not accessible. They're they're not cheap. And they don't come up for sale very often or auction. So some things would be easier. All of course, all the coins are all readily available. Anybody can very inexpensively put together a set of her coins. Uh, the metals is more problematic, but I think a person who wanted to do this, and, and I leave my set open-ended. If something comes up that I don't have, uh, I'm in the bidding for it. But you can have a very good sampling of her work and have a really nice collection. With that in mind, let's think move to today and look backward a little bit. <laughs> And assess how broad her impact has been. Uh, has she had a serious influence on designers and engravers from the period in which she thrived to today? And and if so, what is that? I think that she would have had to. Being the first woman to design the United States coin kind of made her a pioneer, kind of made it, you know, something that little girls at that time who were aspiring to be uh, sculptresses uh, would aspire to. But it's kind of interesting. She she was a person for her time that influenced a lot of change, and there was a lot of change moving in society and and this kind of thing. And, and I always go back to look at her from the time, you know, that she came on the scene and designed that first coin to the time uh, Elizabeth Jones became the chief engraver of the United States Mint, was only 60 years. And, and to me, that's that's a lot of distance 
that's a lot of uh, advancement for women in that field in a very short period of time. Uh, it, it's hard to estimate her impact, but I find, too, that when the U.S. Mint decided to do the 1999 Washington uh, death commemorative and reuse her 1932 design, I think they were admitting, although tacitly and not openly, almost admitting that they blew it in 1932. That's just my think on it, but I'm glad that they did come back and at least have that half eagle. I have the half eagle in my collection. It's a beautiful piece and I enjoy it a lot. So, you know, for them to come back and to, to take some of her designs and redo them into a commemorative, you know, that had to take a little bit of doing too. Uh, so, you know, she hasn't come out boldly and, and people say, well, I'm doing this because Laura Garner Frazier did this. She, she, her influence was always subtle and always kind of behind the scenes. She is never kind of really, really out there. She just let her art uh, do the talking for her. Well, that seems the the commemorative half-eagle in 1999 seems sort of a fitting coda for a career of someone mm-hmm. who many of many of her designs were used on commemorative coins. And I think that not only our hobby, but the history of medallic and numismatic art in America benefited from her career. So, Gary, thank you so much for spending this time and talking to us about Laura Garden Fraser. I know that our listeners will be really interested in hearing about the very first woman to ever design a U.S. coin. And yes, you mentioned that she let her art speak for herself. We're glad that you were able to speak for her and her art with us today. Great. You're welcome. I had a lot of fun. And you guys caused me to think of things I don't think with these questions were not easy questions. So. <laughs> well, we did our job. <laughs> well, well, thank you so much. We, we really appreciate your, uh, your taking the time to talk to us. You're welcome. Glad to be, glad to be with you today. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Gary Herman, an expert on the life and coinage of Laura Garn Fraser. I know that her designs endure into the present day and are widely considered some of the most beautiful coins, particularly the most beautiful commemorative coins that America ever produced. And medals. She's had some great medals. Yeah, she absolutely has. And and so if you get a chance, find some of her work and go out and collect a few examples. You can find a lot of them for a decent price and they make for wonderful additions to any American coin collection. A wonderful addition to your podcast library is this podcast you're listening to (laughs) right now. That was good. Please subscribe if you haven't yet. We will be forever in your debt. Not real money, maybe Monopoly money, but maybe we can talk about that someday too. (laughs) Please (laughs) subscribe. You'll have our thanks. Share that with friends, enemies, relatives, neighbors, all that, so we can continue to have fun and share some education and some bad puns with you every week. (laughs) So until next week, happy happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. This episode of the CoinWorld podcast was brought to you by Amos Advantage, your ultimate destination for coin collecting accessories. Receive free shipping on all orders over $65. This is a limited time offer, so shop amosadvantage.com today.